0: From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the show that leaves you begging for more. On this week's show, we have mail, and we get a pleasant surprise after I do Book Nook. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, the guy who's listening to the radio right now. Can you hear it? Never mind. Let's get to the show. This week's Book Nook Pick is the book Waiting for the Revolution, a Montana memoir. It's by Joanne Shroxel. This book is about the author Joanne's parents, grandparents, relatives, and the town of Plentywood, Montana, where she grew up. While you read, the story takes you on a great ride through Plentywood and what she describes as a stuff of myths. Plentywood is a stuff of myths from Joanne's uncle Boyce, who had a warrant for his arrest, to her parents, who married each other while both in other relationships. Although Joanne only had five years with her dad, the Plentywood Sheriff, her mother would tell her stories of her dad and the town of Plentywood. Later on in the show, I have a surprise for you, so stay tuned. If you like this book, another book, this one of poetry by Joanne, is called Mean Dog Blues and is available right now. Forrest Fenn, an 89-year-old, created a challenge 10 years ago that has finally been fulfilled. Forrest hid a bronze treasure chest filled with many valuable items, including gold and jewels somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. The contents of the chest are worth more than one million U.S. dollars. The aim of the challenge was to get people outside and active, although many people have told Forrest to call off the challenge because of the dangerous terrain he has kept it going for 10 years. Clues from a 24-line poem are published in Fenn's book called The Thrill of the Chase. You can also find clues online. The winner of the competition sent pictures of the chest to Forrest Fenn and was congratulated. The man who says that he is from the East did not put his name out publicly yet. Fenn said on his website, quote, It was under a canopy of stars in the lush, forested vegetation of the Rocky Mountains and had not moved from the spot where I had hit it more than ten years ago. I do not know the person who found it, but the poem in my book led him to the precise spot, unquote. (laughs) a second, we're going to go to my interview with Joanne Troxell, the author of Waiting for the Revolution, a Montana memoir, which was on Book Nook today, but first a message from me and then the latest news. Hey, News Nerds listeners, it's your host, Ezra Graham. I just want to tell you that News Nerds is going to take kind of a summer break. Instead of full shows every Wednesday, you will get shortened shows every Wednesday. That will include an interview and some other content, but will not have all the content that a regular show would include. Thanks. Keep listening. Again, news nerds will now be broadcasting shortened shows and not full shows. And now for the latest news. Throughout these past few weeks, protests demanding action to stop racism have been carried out. Recently, they went global from Montana to Australia. The largely peaceful protests have brought thousands upon thousands of people onto the streets. Today, George Floyd's brother said to reporters, quote, It hurt just to watch 8 minutes and 46 seconds, and I was in pain. And the world is in pain right now. I love my brother. He's still here in spirit right now, and we need justice, and we demand justice, unquote. This comes as memorials and protests honor George Floyd's life. That was cut short when a police officer kneeled on his neck for an outrageous 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Joanne joins us from Bozeman. She has written a book of poetry and has written a memoir. Welcome. Well, thank
1: you for asking me i'm really honored thank you very much
0: Ezra. to start off with could you tell our listeners about your books and what made you decide to write them
1: well you know it was kind of odd Ezra, because i was busy writing a novel and over the years i would sort of told you know some stories or whatever but there was a book, The Red Corner, came out, and it was about wood and that's where my grandfather homesteaded, and where my father and mother met, and Scandalized Town. So, I, finally, I thought somebody said, you ought to write this story, because The Red Corner was about, that whole area went communist in the 30s, 20s and 30s so my mother and father lived there then so somebody just said you need to write this story and i guess i just said okay um, but i preferred writing fiction and i preferred writing poems but then when i started thinking of it and then i got into it i realized it was important history so Then I, it took, me four years, but I was working on other things, too. But if it was going to be a Montana book, I wanted it to be the best book it could be, you know? See, the thing about stories, books, the hardest part is what's the beginning going to be like? Because you have to really have something that's going to be the thrust of your book, and yet, how do you go there? And... The other thing is how do you end a book? And so the beginning I got that pretty good and after that I was sort of rolling along. But the ending I didn't know what to do. Everything I put down I just said, Oh, that's bad. So it took me three or four days thinking about it and then one day it came to me. And I swear it's the weirdest thing ever because all of a sudden I had it. And so when you get to the ending of the book, what I did is tie it in with the beginning. And I was so happy about that. That's why I tell you what, I just said, perfect, perfect. But it took a long time. It wasn't just the first thing, it wasn't the second. I had to do it five or six times, and finally. So what I'm saying is with a lot of time, just the process of writing tells you where you want to go. You may write and write and you don't want any of it, but all of a sudden that process of you arrive at a place that yeah, you've got it.
0: How long it did it take to publish your memoir? That's called Waiting for the Revolution, a Montana memoir. Well, I started it and then I
1: thought maybe I should end it when my father dies. And so I sent it to my editor, Ursula Smith, and she said, no, people will want a little more. So I actually rewrote the part after my father's death that I had previously. I just decided that focus, just focus on my father and mother when they're both alive and then my mother and what happens to her. And so that's that's what I did and that took me about four years. And I was, you know, I was working on other things, but I had to do some research too, Ezra, because I had a lot of memories and people told me things and I'd met friends my father and mother, but I still had to verify, I had to be accurate because now I'm in more than just a story of my parents, I'm into a story of a time. So, I had to do some research to verify facts and and that's always interesting because you find out that facts can be different in different places, so that's that's about what it took me.:
0: Can you tell me about the self-publishing process and what it took to publish your memoir? Well, you know self-publishing is a direct route, and you the many companies that are doing a film that have editors,
1: uh, they will promote your book, and they will kind of, because you know, we're used to big publishing companies, but right now big publishing companies uh, aren't promoting books very much. So self-publishing for things like a memoir about Montana is kind of a Montana book, but I just called this publisher, uh, Sweetgrass Publishers, and said, here's my book. I sent them all of it, and I said, Will you have somebody go through it, edit it. And even so, the are mistakes in it because it's what's called self-correcting. And I tell you, it's hard to get perfect copy because the printers themselves will think they know better than you do, you know, sometimes, you know, that kind of thing that happens with your email. And it's really quite simple. And then they wanted to promote the book because they saw my book as a book that would probably sell. So they checked out the country bookshelf, they checked around, and so they told me that they would promote it, they get a certain amount of money, and I do. And so for me, it's, if you want to write a book, you write a book there are so many different publishers. I happen to like Sweetgrass because they're really smart and they help you with design and they help you dates like I had a date I had instead of uh, 18 something I had 19 something and they caught up and so
0: uh, it's pretty simple. Could you briefly describe what living in Montana was like at that time because while I'm reading your memoir, there's some pretty crazy things that would never happen right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really true in so many ways. For instance, that country where those homesteaders came was awfully hard country to live in, but it's still there. And it's mostly a farming wheat country. But it all depends on rain because they don't have irrigation. So it's what's called dry land farming. And now, of course, they have all kinds of fertilizers. They have all kinds of ways of making sure they get a good crop. But it was very primitive when my grandfather and grandmother came. And it was hard times. And many of the people that came to homesteading were from other countries, of course, they were from the Scandinavian countries. And there was a Danish community there from Denmark, and there were Norwegians. But the thing is uh, about those people is that they came from liberal places where cooperation was more important than competition. So to be a socialist or a communist where you shared it's very simple for them. Very straightforward. But you're right, now everybody's scared of socialism and communism is, you know, uh, a memory of a country that used to be uh, an ally of ours and now isn't. And <laughs> and yeah, it's different.
0: How is the coronavirus affecting you and your writing? Um,
1: In a way, I did a, a project called Women Elders, View What It's Like Living in with the co- Coronavirus. And at first it seemed sort of doable, but now we're in this uncertain period. And really, as we like with my book, I had a reading and book signing at the country bookshelf. And it was packed and I then I was going to go from there to Plentywood. They were having the hundredth anniversary at the library and sell books there. And I was going to go to Abazoah and all over. So I was going on tour, but the coronavirus cut that off. So in some ways it's hard for a writer because you can't you can't go talk about your book anywhere because people don't meet,
0: you know. Has the coronavirus pandemic inspired your writing or just you in general?
1: You know, in some ways it's inspired me to write letters to the editor. Because I feel like we had very, very poor present getting us ready for this pandemic, which he knew was coming. And um, then also I'm thinking about that black man, Floyd George, that got killed by a policeman. And so these are very challenging times. And they're, they're really in a way kind of a distraction because you look at our country and you feel like, what's happening to our country and our democratic institutions? with this crazy narcissistic man who is so childish and wise all the time. And then, you know, he he called and blue low brows these people that were protesting this murder so those things I as are well, very distracting and they
0: make us sad. And they make us want to do something but the best thing we could do is vote and write letters to the editor, which I've got on my computer now. Do you have any current writing projects that you're working on? Well, I asked women writers to talk about the pandemic, and 35 wrote essays. I'm putting that together in a book, so I have to, I'm
1: in the process of writing something for that book that I'm sort of editing and self-publishing just to have a record of what women said, elder women, what they had to say about this pandemic. And like there was a woman a hundred years old and she really couldn't celebrate her hundredth birthday because of the virus. So she made this big sign and put it out on her balcony. And everybody that went by stopped and talked to her from the balcony and So, you know, it's been hard to celebrate graduations, the way that we celebrate things, the way we enjoy and mark
0: times. We can't do that now because of this virus. We can't get together. In the beginning of the book, you said that you've done a pachakacha. That's cool. I've done one too. I just did one last November. What was that about? Oh yeah, the
1: pachaca. Well, remember when
0: you did Pachachka? Yes, it was very fun.
1: Well, I did Pachachka. I pretended that I was my mother, and why my mother, why this woman fell in love with the chef and was a scandal of the town. And I did it with another woman. She grew up in Plentywood, and she has heard all these stories about my parents so she gave the background and what it was like growing up and then i gave the more personal i tell you the touch is really a challenge isn't it you know to get the right amount of slides to fit the right amount of theme and everything and uh, i thought that was kind of a fun project i liked working with the limitations
0: Yes, I thought it was very fun, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, you did a great, great job. I really loved it a lot.
0: Thank you. So in the book, you list some of the stories that your mother told you, and I was just wondering if those are word-for-word, word, or is, is that what you remember from your mom's story? Oh, that you know, that's
1: a, a really good question, because the way that kind of works but I was so used to her her, her stories she told me many times, you know. And she would quite often repeat these. Well, every time she told them, it was like she was making them better and better because they were for her. She was very artistic. So I remembered all those stories. And I remember just being kind of mesmerized with them. So in a way, I had her voice in my head, because as a little kid, she'd been telling me stories for years and years. So I knew how to do it, and I knew the subject. I knew, you know, they, there might be like two different ones commingled, but they're her voice that's the way she would have talked about the land, she would have talked about the land, and I I always could see it. These snowstorms are so cold in that country, and the rope to the house, and the barn, and blizzards, and cattle dying, so I heard all those, and so what it is, it's memory It isn't word for word for word, it's a memory. But it captures the spirit. It captures her intonations. And when I was writing it, I could almost hear her voice telling me those stories. My brothers, if one of my brothers told the story, it might be an entirely different. the same story might be told differently. But I told it this way because the way I remember it.
0: Thank you for answering my questions today. Joanne Troxell has written two books. One of them is called Waiting for the Revolution. It's a great memoir. I'm reading it right now. You can get that on Amazon and at the Country Bookshelf. In my interview with Joanne Troxell, we talked about a Pachaka Pachakacha is a storytelling event that is hosted all over the world. In fact, this event started in Japan, and pachakacha literally means chit-chat in Japanese. I say pachakacha differently than many other people. Pachakacha can be pronounced pachakacha, pachukucha, and pachachka. This is how a pachakacha presentation works. The presenter gets 20 slides to present a topic of their choice. They talk for 20 seconds per slide, which adds up to about 7 minutes of talking. Both me and Joanne have presented at a Pachakacha event. You can listen and watch Pachakacha presentations on YouTube and at the Pachakacha website. If you're wondering how to spell Pachakacha, it is P-E-C-H-A space K-U-C-H-A. now it's time for Wildlife Journal. Instead of doing a story this week, I'm going to tell you about some of the wildlife in my neighborhood. Yes, I have lots of wildlife in my neighborhood. Take for example that there's a bat in the room next door. Yeah, a bat came into my house. I don't know. I don't know how, but it's in there. We have a group of sandhill cranes that you can see on the website nesting in our area. And we've seen a beaver and an otter. And many other things that just live around here. The other thing that is not so wild that we got is some chicks. They are domesticated, but I thought that I'd let you guys know on Wildlife Journal. Our chicks range from four days old to about four weeks old. Yesterday, I moved some of them out to the greenhouse, and they are very happy there. They have much more room, and I feed them every day with water and the chicken food. They can eat as much chicken food as they want and they can also scavenge for little bugs in the ground. They love out- being outside because they can find slugs and worms to eat up. The little ones that are four days old are so cute and we got them from an incubator. An incubator it basically replicates the warmth of a mother and We put eggs in the incubator, and after about 21 days, things started to get crazy. The eggs started to hatch, and little tiny chicks popped out of them. It was so fun to watch. And now it's for our musical segment. This week, I'm going to play ABCDEFG, The Remastered Edition. What's next? I forgot. ABCDEFG, Q-R-S, Now I Sum my ABCs. Next time, won't you listen to News Nerds? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We got mail, and let's play it for you. Hello, Ezra. It's Richie and... Ginger. We're in Florida. We just listened to Cow Pies, and we can't stop laughing. We are looking forward every week to your news nerds. And we, Cow Pies. And we... Listen to it every Thursday morning before the sun comes up with our morning coffee. We are very proud of you and all you have accomplished. We send our love. Keep up the good work. I'm excited to announce that there has been some great developments in just this week with the Geographic Location Challenge. So let's get to it. With first place, and 7% of all News Nerds listeners, we have California. Give California a big hand. Second of all, and second place, we have Ohio with 6%. Yay! And last but not least, with third place, we have Connecticut. So no runners-up this week. First place, California. Second place, Ohio. And third place goes to Connecticut. Thank you, listeners. for By the Numbers. According to Johns Hopkins University, the U.S. has almost passed 2 million confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus. That's it for By the Numbers. Our show has come to an end for this week. You can check out our website and subscribe for free today. You can also listen to the first ever Cow Pies episode, which came out last week. Special thanks to Joanne Troxel for popping in on this week's episode of News Nerds. I'm your host, Ezra Graham. We'll see you next week. Well, you know, not actually seeing you, but whatevs.